If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. As we continue in the book of Genesis this morning, we are in Genesis 42. Now, as we consider this chapter, we'll be doing so under uh, a few different uh, a few different main points, and so we'll we'll be breaking up uh, the reading to correspond uh, with those main points. The bulk of our time, however, will be spent on the first uh, main point, which is Joseph remembered the dreams. Joseph remembered the dreams. And so if you would follow along with me, we'll begin reading in Genesis 42, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 20. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain from those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts. Parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, Let one of your brothers be confined in your prison, but as for the rest of you, go, carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. Now, Genesis chapter 41 had ended by telling us that Joseph was selling grain, by telling us that the famine was severe in all the earth. And then Genesis 
42 shifts our focus to what was taking place in the land of Canaan with Jacob and his sons. They evidently also are feeling the effects of the famine. And Jacob tells his sons to to get up, go down to Egypt, because he had heard that there was grain there. And so the ten older brothers do as they are instructed. They go down to Egypt to buy grain. The Benjamin, of course, was kept back at home by Jacob and did not travel with his brothers, and we know explicitly why. Jacob kept him behind lest something happened to him, as we find in verse 4. Now this harkens, of course, back to Jacob's personal history, and the pieces all fit together quite nicely. You will understand why he keeps Benjamin back, because, as you recall, Rachel was the woman that Jacob loved. She was the woman that he was engaged to marry, but Jacob was tricked on his wedding night and thus became married to Leah as well. And then there was the rivalry between the two sisters competing for pregnancy and children and for their husband's affections. And in the mess of all of that, they gave him their maids, Bilhah and Leah, so that the children of those maids would be recognized as their own, as Rachel's children and Leah's children, respectively. In all those years of conflict, however, Jacob's true love was Rachel. And Rachel had only two children. There was Joseph and there was Benjamin. Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, had been Jacob's favorite. But ever since his brothers had sold him into slavery and had taken that coat dipped in blood back to Jacob, Jacob had considered him to be dead. And so it is no wonder then that Benjamin now succeeded in taking Joseph's place as the favorite son in the affections of Jacob. Benjamin is the youngest son. He's Joseph's younger brother. He's the only surviving son of Rachel. He was, if you recall from Genesis 35, he was the son at whose birth Rachel met her death. And so it's quite clear that Benjamin is the favorite at this point. And even though we can't justify the conduct of Jacob in this regard, we can at least we can at least understand how he got there. And so now these ten older brothers have gone down to Egypt. And without knowing it, they were going down to Joseph. And again, if we think back in the, the history of Genesis, the situation here is somewhat the inverse of what happened back in chapter 37. Back in chapter 37, Joseph was sent by his father to visit his ten brothers who were out pasturing the sheep. And now here in chapter 42, the ten brothers are sent by their father to buy grain. And in sending them on that mission, he was unknowingly sending them to meet Joseph. According to verse 6, Joseph is in charge of selling the grain. And when his brothers come to him, they bow their faces to the ground. Now Joseph, we are told, recognized them, but they did not recognize him. The times and the circumstances had changed. It had been 20 years, at the very least, since they had last seen each other. Joseph was 17 back when he was sold into slavery. He was 30 when he, was, uh, when he came out of prison before Pharaoh. So that's 13 years. And then on top of that, there had been seven more years of plenty before the famine came. So there had been at least 20 years separating the events of chapter 37 with these events here in chapter 42. And in addition to the, the length of time, Joseph had no doubt changed his style. 
second in command to Pharaoh, wasn't going to be dressed like a Hebrew boy from Canaan. Joseph could recognize their language, but he let on like he did not understand it. And on top of all of that, this was the last place, the very last place that his brothers would have expected to find him. Even if they had suspected that he was still alive after those 20 years, this is the last place they would have expected to see him. And so we can understand why they would not have recognized him. And then on the other side, we can also understand why Joseph would have been able to recognize his brothers. They were still dressed like Hebrew shepherds. There were 10 of them in a group. And we can understand how if there had only been one of them, that Joseph might have scratched his head a little bit and said, is that really Naphtali? I wonder. But when there's all 10 of them and they show up in a group, he can look at the group and work through the brothers and he can say, man, Reuben's looking old. Simeon and Levi don't look quite as fierce and quite as stout as they did back when they murdered all the men of Shechem. There's Judah. There's Dan. He could, he could work down the list and he could see, okay, yeah, this makes sense. Ten, ten brothers, this is them. But can you imagine the scene? Joseph, Lord of the land, standing there in all his dignity and finery, and these ten Hebrew shepherds bowing down to him with their faces in the ground. It's no wonder that he remembered the dreams that he had had about them. Those two dreams, of course, were the dreams of the, the brothers, sheaves of wheat, bowing down to his. Now that's interesting imagery, not only with the sheaves bowing down, but also with respect to the fact that they were sheaves of wheat. That's what the brothers are here to get, right? They're here to get grain. And then there was the second dream of the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to him. It's no wonder Joseph remembered the dreams. Now, while the narrative of the chapter doesn't supply us with all of the details and the thoughts that would have been running through Joseph's mind, I think it most likely that Joseph now understands that those dreams were given him by God and that those dreams were predictive in nature and that those predictions were now being fulfilled in real time before him. And even though you and I are not giving uh, prophetic dreams of the sort that Joseph had, nevertheless, sometimes in your own life experience, you may see the word of God fulfilled in real time before you. You may see the truth of Scripture borne out right in front of your eyes as you live your life. This, of course, was the experience of the disciples. And and the Gospel of John, I think, is interesting in this respect. John will tell us sometimes about an event that happened in the ministry of Jesus, and then he'll tell us about the disciples remembering something, either at that point as the events were happening or else later on as they reflected back on the events that were happening. And so, for instance, there were a couple of those things in uh, that passage that our brother Nathan read for us this morning from John chapter 2. When Jesus uh, drove the money changers out of the temple, John tells us in John 2.17 that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so they see Jesus doing something in front of them, driving out the money changers, and they think back to the scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. And as that passage in John 2 goes on, uh, the Jews, of course, ask for a sign, for Jesus to give them a sign to demonstrate uh, the authority for doing what he did. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then we find in John 2.22 
So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. After Jesus had been raised from the dead, they were able to think back and to think to his words and to understand that, yes, we saw the words that Jesus spoke fulfilled. After three days, he did raise the temple. He raised the temple of his body. And you see something similar in John 12 in regard to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. John tells us about the events of that day and what Jesus did and what was done to him, getting on the donkey and going into Jerusalem and so forth. And he tells us in John 12, 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. The point is, is that sometimes people get to see the word of God fulfilled right in front of them. Sometimes they recognize this immediately, and sometimes only upon reflection after the fact. Now, again, you and I are not the patriarch Joseph, nor are we the 12 apostles, specially designated and chosen by the Lord. But nevertheless, sometimes you and I have the opportunity to see the scripture fulfilled right in front of you. Think of the Proverbs. Now, one extreme example. The uh, story was told that one time Billy Sunday was, was preaching and there was a heckler out in the crowd and Billy invited this heckler to come up on the stage and the man said that he didn't believe that the Bible was true. And Billy Sunday, according to the story, grabbed his nose and started twisting until his nose started bleeding and then drew the man's attention to Proverbs 30, verse 33, which says, The ringing of the nose bringeth forth blood. Now, of course, that's an extreme example, and I I don't recommend it for multiple reasons. Don't don't do that. Don't do that. But there are other Proverbs that you may see fulfilled before you in real time. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. You might see those words fulfilled in real time in your life. Sometimes you reprove a scoffer and they hate you. They heap abuse upon you. Uh, Sometimes you reprove a wise man and he receives it. He takes it to heart. He can thank you and be glad that you have turned him from the error of his way. And so you might get to look at your life experience, look at the scripture and say, that's actually true. Think likewise Proverbs 14.3. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back. His words are the source of his beating, but the lips of the wise protect him. There's prudence. They know when to speak and when to be silent. Can you not look at any number of people either in the public square or in your own life, and then see that truth borne out. Or to get more personal, think of of Psalm 126, verse 5, those words that we sang earlier, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Have you ever been there in a hard season of sowing? Maybe it's pouring your life out into your children Maybe it's pouring your life out into other people as you seek to evangelize them or seek to disciple them. Or 
you pour out your life for the good of the body of Christ in some way or another. Sometimes the sowing, figuratively and literally, takes place in tears. When that's you, and when you're sowing in tears, remember the scripture. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. Or remember the words of Paul, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not uh, lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Or has the experience of David in Psalm 32 ever been your own? That feeling of guilt and wasting away because of sin, as he put it, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Have you ever known that pressing feeling of guilt? And then have you known the feeling of blessing and relief when you confess your sins to the Lord and you experience the forgiveness of sins and the blessing of knowing that your sins are forgiven through faith in Christ. I love the way that the Augsburg Confession spoke of salvation by grace alone apart from works. And they said, although this doctrine is despised by the inexperienced, nevertheless, God-fearing and anxious consciences find by experience that it brings the greatest consolation Because consciences cannot be set at rest through any works, but only by faith, when they take the sure ground that for Christ's sake they have a reconciled God. There's something that we as believers experience when we know the pressing weight of guilt, and then we know the great relief, the great freedom, the forgiveness and reconciliation with God brings through faith in Christ. Or, again, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you ever known that feeling? That when you're weary, when you're heavy laden, you come to Christ, and Christ gives rest. The point that I'm trying to make is that just as Joseph was able to think back to these prophetic dreams of his, which were sent by God, So you and I, too, ought, as we walk through life, to be able to think back to the Word of God in Scripture and see it verified and fulfilled in our own lives and experience. As you walk through life, you ought to be thinking back and remembering the Scripture. Not doing this in a a mystical and weird sort of way, but in a way that, that takes the Word as it is given and compares it practically with life, and sees that, indeed, these things are true, just as God has said. Just as Joseph remembered his dreams, so we too ought to remember the Scripture. Now, let me just add a a caveat so as not to be misunderstood in what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we ought to judge the Scriptures by our experience, and that if we cannot reconcile our experience with the scriptures, then we judge the scripture as false or faulty because maybe it doesn't seem to mesh quite with life as we seem to know it. I'm not saying that at all because that is actually a very wrong and wicked way to approach the scripture. On the contrary, let God be true and every man a liar. And so if the scripture doesn't seem to match your experience, you trust the scriptures instead of your experience. You trust the scriptures over and above your interpretation of your experience. We have to understand that God is the one who is truthful and that we are the ones who are liable either to misunderstand the scriptures or to misunderstand our experience or perhaps to misunderstand both. 
So we, we never judge the scripture by our experience. But what I am saying is that as we go through the, our life as Christians, with the knowledge of the scriptures, we can and should reflect a little bit from time to time on our experience and remember the scriptures and see how the truth of God is verified even in our own lives. So Joseph remembered the dreams. And so there they were, the long-lost brothers, separated by 20 years' time and now in a different country, back together again. But this was not time for a joyous family reunion. The last things that Joseph knew of his brothers were not good. If you think back to Genesis 37, even before Joseph had been the uh, the victim of his brother's cruel intentions, Back before his dreams had been ridiculed by his brothers, Joseph had had an occasion to bring back to Jacob a bad report about some of his brothers. That's how Genesis 37 opens up, Genesis 37 too. He took back a bad report about his brothers, and uh, Joseph knew what Simeon and Levi had done in Shechem. Joseph knew... What Reuben had done with his father's concubine, he knew well from his own experience what these men were capable of doing. And as he surveyed the scene, there's only 10 brothers. Where was was number 11? Where was Benjamin? Was he safe? Joseph could easily have guessed that in his absence, Benjamin would have risen in his place as the favorite son of Jacob, which indeed, as we've seen, was the case. And you can understand the kinds of questions and suspicions that would have been swirling now in Joseph's head, knowing how these brothers had already once dealt with their father's favorite son. Given their past history of violence, jealousy, scheming, and so on, Joseph might well wonder if they had done or would do the same thing to Benjamin that they had done to him. And so Joseph takes a very stern approach. He pretends to suspect that these men are spies. And indeed, the direction of Canaan was historically a vulnerable direction for the land of Egypt. They had come from the very direction from which the Egyptians feared attack. It's been said that during antiquity, the eastern boundary of Egypt, that boundary separating Egypt from Canaan, was uh, protected by a huge canal and that the primary function was for containment to keep the Asiatics out and to keep the slaves of Egypt in. And Joseph knew that his brothers were not spies, but yet he utilizes this piece of Egyptian concern and his ruse by which he tests his brothers. And as he insists that they are spies, they insist that they are not. And in their insistence, they give a a skeleton sketch of the family there in verse 13. Your servants are 12 brothers in all. Sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive, or more literally, one is not, or one is no more. But Joseph wants more than words, he wants the proof. He wants to see Benjamin. And so he tests the integrity of his brothers. And he also likely desires to put them in mind of their former crimes and to bring about their repentance if they have not repented, or to see their repentance if they are. And so we see in verses 15 through 17 that he sends them to prison, and he tells them 
that they will not get out until their youngest brother comes to Egypt. And so they're to send one of the brothers back to Canaan to bring Benjamin down to Egypt. But after three days in prison, Joseph lightens up a little bit and sweetens the deal. He says, I'll just keep one, the rest of you go, and then bring Benjamin back. Now, in all of this, I think there are a couple of things that we ought to consider. For one, I think we ought to notice that it was on the third day that Joseph released his brothers. And if we we think about this, there is as much of significance that happens in the Old Testament on the third day. I think we could call it a theme. We could call it a repeating pattern. So just just think with me of a few examples of this. In Genesis 22.4, it was the third day after Abraham and Isaac had set off for the sacrifice that Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place where, they, uh, where he was to sacrifice Isaac. Here in Genesis 42, Joseph's brothers had been in prison for three days, and then on the third day, Joseph brings them out. He says, do this and live. After Israel had come out of Egypt and were gathered at Sinai, the Lord spoke to Moses in Exodus 19, 10, and 11, and said, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And the law in Leviticus 7 demanded that no flesh of any peace offerings be eaten after the third day. Now, there were different types of peace offerings. Some had to be consumed on the, the very day that they were offered. Others could be saved a little while, but... Uh, must be either eaten or consumed by fire by the third day. You have the words also of Hosea 6 too. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. There was a sign of, of Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, which Jesus himself applied as a sign of his resurrection for As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Other examples could be given, but I think you see the point. And while we might be cautious of making too much of a single, solitary reference to a third day, yet when we see this repeated pattern of significant things taking place on the third day, And when we know that the most significant thing of all, Christ's resurrection from the dead, took place on the third day, we may well suspect that those various references to the third day are part of a pattern, part of the typology pointing ahead to Christ, pointing ahead to his resurrection on the third day after his death. And so just as these brothers, including Judah, came out of prison on the third day and were released to take this life-giving sustenance back to their families who were suffering from famine, so also Judah's greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, came out of the prison of death on the third day for our salvation. Now secondly, though we may, uh, I think we may well wonder what we're to make of some of the aspects of Joseph's conduct here. Now I have no concerns with him putting his brothers in prison, or with the fact that, as we'll see later on, he kept Simeon in prison for much longer. Given all that they had done, I think the brothers actually got off pretty lightly. But I do think we may well wonder what to make of Joseph's deception. Not that he is obligated to say to his brothers at this point, I am Joseph. I don't think he's under any obligation at all in that regard. But rather, 
his deception of saying that he believed his brothers were spies. He didn't didn't actually think that they really were spies. There was deception here on the part of Joseph. I think Calvin's comments are worth considering on this point when he said, whether God governed his servant by some special movement to depart without fault from the common rule of action, I know not, seeing that the faithful may sometimes piously do things which cannot lawfully be drawn into a precedent. Of this, however, in considering the acts of the Holy Fathers, we must always beware, lest they should lead us away from the law which the Lord prescribes to all in common. By the general command of God, we must all cultivate sincerity. That Joseph feigned something different from the truth affords no pretext to excuse if we attempt anything of the same kind. And so I think the point is, is that we have, a, we have here a divine history of Joseph's actions in this regard, but we don't have a divine commentary on whether Joseph's actions here were approved by God or disapproved by God. And I think I would borrow the words of Francis Turton in this regard and say that we live by rules, not by examples, nor are the defects and blemishes of the saints recorded by the sacred writers on that account approved. And so next time you think about trying to pull a fast one on someone, being a little bit deceptive, don't think back to Joseph and say, well, Joseph deceived his brothers, I can do that too. That's, that's not why this is here. Justifying your deception is not why this account of Joseph deceiving his brothers is here. And then, on top of that, I think perhaps a cause of greater concern is the oath which Joseph takes in verses 15 and 16 when he says more than once, by the life of Pharaoh. Though the letter of the Mosaic law was not yet given, yet when it was given, the law of Deuteronomy 6.13 was, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship and swear by his name. Now Joseph here takes an oath uh, in the name of something which is not God, and he swears by Pharaoh, who in the ancient economy of things often claimed that they were divine. This doesn't strike me as a particularly upright or godly thing of Joseph to do. Again, we live by rules, not by examples. As the saying goes, the best of men are men at best. Joseph was clearly a great man, clearly a man who trusted the Lord. But he was not a sinless man. He was not the Messiah. And it shouldn't surprise us when we read about the sins of Joseph any more than we're not surprised when we read about the sins of of Abraham or of David or of Peter. He is a great man, but not a sinless and faultless man. Now, let's read ahead, verses 21 through 28, and we'll come to our second point, which is the brothers recognize their guilt. The brothers recognize their guilt. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brothers, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, when uh, therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. 
Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And so, as we've seen, Joseph released his brothers the third day and told them to bring Benjamin with them when they returned. If they tried to come back without Benjamin, they would not see his face. And as Joseph spoke to them in that way, the brothers then understood their guilt in regard to how they had treated Joseph. They understood that this distress was coming upon them because of what they had done some 20, 20 plus years before. And Reuben speaks up in verse 22 and says, essentially, I tried to tell you. I tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen to me. And unbeknownst to them, Joseph understood all of what they were saying. And unbeknownst to them, he was deeply moved by it. He bound Simeon in front of them. Simeon was to be, as it were, the security deposit. And we're not sure why it was Simeon. Maybe it was just a random choice as he looked at the group of the brothers, or maybe Simeon had been more fierce in terms of his opposition. Maybe it was most fitting out of all of the ten that Simeon be the one that stayed. We know at least that Simeon had been one of the murderers there at Shechem, and so you can understand why he might have been fierce in his antagonism toward Joseph as well. That might have been kind of his, his personality, his way of going about things. And as Joseph sends the brothers on their way back to Canaan, he gives them provisions for the journey. He also puts their money back in their sack. And this proved, as we see in the text, to cause some consternation to the brothers. And later on in the chapter, to Jacob as well. As they open up their sacks at the lodging place one night on the way back home, one of the brothers first sees that his money is there in the sack. Now, later on in in chapter 43... Uh, the brothers tell Joseph's steward at his house that they all found their money in the sack at the lodging place. And upon finding the money, they see this as a bad sign. They had told Joseph that they were all honest men, but now it looks like they were being framed as thieves, as those who were trying to have their cake and eat it too, or trying to have their grain and take the money with them as well. And so we read in verse 28, Their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Now notice notice in that, that they jump past the secondary causes of this event, and they jump right to the primary cause of this event. They don't ask, what have the Egyptians done to us? What is is the Lord of Egypt doing to us in this? They said, "What, what is God doing to us in this? What has God done to us? Their consciences were now tender and on edge. Right? They, Joseph gave them a bit of a verbal berating, and they spent three days in prison. Now one of the brothers is still in prison. They're, they're a little bit on edge. Their consciences are tender. They remembered that these things are happening to them because of what they had done to Joseph. And 
They're also, no doubt, sensitive of the fact that Jacob is not going to like the idea of sending Benjamin down to get more grain from Egypt or to get Simeon out of jail. They had lots of reasons to be on edge from several directions, and now this, the money in the sack. What is God doing to them? They recognized their guilt, and they understood that God was dealing with them in accordance with the sins of the past. Now, these brothers misunderstood some things, sure, but they understood their guilt. They at least understood that much, and that was helpful. And all of us need to get there, too. All of us need to get to the point where we understand our guilt before holy God because it is only then, only then, that we can truly embrace the grace and mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Mark 2.17 that it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the point is that if we think of ourselves as righteous then ultimately we'll think that we have no need for Jesus, or at least have no real need for Jesus. It's only when we see ourselves as guilty sinners that we will run to Christ, seek his forgiveness and his mercy that is offered to us in the gospel. The brothers understood their guilt. We need to understand ours as well. And if you have more questions about what it means to to run to Jesus so that we can be forgiven for our sins and be relieved of the guilt that presses upon us, You can talk to me after the service, or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about how you, too, can deal with your guilt, about how your sins of the past can be forgiven through Jesus. And this brings us then to our final point, which is all these things are against me. All these things are against me. Let's pick up reading in verse 29, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. When they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you and you can trade in the land. Now, it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now in these final verses here of chapter 42, we 
see the brothers going back home, going to their father, telling him what happened when they were in Egypt. They empty out their sacks. All of their money tumbles out, and everyone is feeling dismayed. All they wanted to do was go down to Egypt to get some bread to help them out, to help their families out in the famine. How could they have known that things would take the turn that they did and appear to go so wrong? One of the brothers is back in prison in Egypt. They can't get him out or get any more grain unless Benjamin goes with them. And on top of that, it looks like they've been set up to be framed for theft, taking the grain and returning to their own country with it without paying for it. Jacob is up front how he feels about these developments there in verse 36. He said, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Now, Reuben, the firstborn, offers uh, to Jacob that he could put his two sons to death if he doesn't bring Benjamin back safely. But Jacob puts the axe on that idea and says, as far as he's concerned, Benjamin is not going. If harm came to him, he would die in sorrow. The answer is no, Benjamin's not going. For all that he knew, Joseph was dead. For all that he knew, Simeon was lost to him being imprisoned in Egypt, any plan to get more grain or to get Simeon out of prison would endanger Benjamin. Life looked pretty tough from where he sat. And so he said, all these things are against me. All of it. But it wasn't quite true, was it? Matthew Henry rightly noted, he said, it proved otherwise that all these were for him, were working together for his good and the good of his family. Yet here he thinks that all was against him. Through our ignorance and mistake and the weakness of our faith, we often apprehend that to be against us, which is really for us. We are afflicted in body, estate, name, and relations, and we think that all these things are against us, whereas they are really working for us the weight of glory. Now you see the point. I won't belabor it long, but you you see it. So many times we look at the events that are happening to us, that are going on around us, and we conclude that these things are against us. Bad things happen. And we say these things are against us, just like Jacob did. It wasn't true in Jacob's case. All of these things were actually working together for his good, as we'll see, Lord willing, over the course of the coming weeks here in Genesis. And if you are a Christian, the same is true for you. Paul says we know that God causes all things, all things, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in this world, we meet with many terrible things that in themselves are evil and wicked and hurtful. And on the surface, at first glance, they seem to be against us. And maybe even upon some reflection, they seem to be against us. But that is not the reality. The reality is is that if you are in Christ, all things are actually working together for your good. And so when you are tempted to say or to feel what Jacob said here, all these things are against me. In that moment, please slow down. Please remember the scriptures. Remember God's word. Remember the great words of our Lord Jesus in John 14, 1. He said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. 
believe also in me. All things are in his hand. And for those who are his, he is working all things together for good, even when it may not seem like it at the time. Let's give him praise and thanks for that. Father, we know that we encounter much because of sin and evil in this world, but we give you thanks, Father, that Christ has overcome the world, that we are safe in him, and that all things are actually working together for our good. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would take you at your word, and Lord, that you would Encourage our spirits, which are often desponding and fearful when bad things happen to us. Yet, Lord, we ask that you would help us to see them with the eye of faith. Not claiming to know exactly how they will work out, but trusting you that ultimately all is working together for good. We praise you for the great promises that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We give thanks to you. We ask your blessing and we ask your strengthening help to be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.